Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. I'm Paul J. Don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the page. And without viewer support, we can't do this. In 2019, Canada finally signed the Arms Trade Treaty, known as the ATT, becoming the 104th state to do so. So that means 103 states did it before Canada did. And Canada was actually the last NATO country to do so. The treaty is supposed to regulate the sale of what's called small arms, but it includes some pretty big arms, anything from battle tanks, armored combat vehicles, attack helicopters, to missiles and missile launchers. Canada was the world's 16th largest arms exporter between 2014 and 2018, and is now in the top 15. With a $15 billion sale of light armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia, Canada became the second largest exporter of arms to the Middle East. Those vehicles will be used in the Saudi war in Yemen and against its own people. The real size of Canada's exports are hard to measure as the majority are to the United States and do not require the same export controls. But when the U.S. wages an illegal war, you can be sure Canadian manufactured arms and parts will be there. Canada's contribution to the global war machine is a growing business. And in spite of the rhetoric about Canada being the righteous peacekeeper, the Canadian government promotes arms sales as if it were wheat or timber. Now joining us is Yves Engler. He's a Montreal-based activist, an author, a journalist. He's published 11 books, including his latest, House of Mirrors, Justin Trudeau's Foreign Policy. Thanks for joining us, Eve. Thanks for having me. So, Eve, why don't start with what that ATT treaty was about. Uh, as, uh, when it says regulate these arms sales, what does it mean? Because there's this massive sale to the Saudis, $15 billion over a few years. Uh, and whatever that AT&T, AT, not AT&T, whatever the ATT treaty was, it didn't seem to have uh, put any brakes on that. No, it, it didn't. It's supposed to regulate uh, weapons from being used in uh, conflicts, uh, uh, in human rights abuses. But uh, obviously, if... Uh, if Canada can still be signing uh, new, uh, giving out new permits for weapons to the Saudis, uh, while the Saudis are involved in the uh, probably worst, one of the worst humanitarian disasters in the world, i.e., waging a war, a brutal war in Yemen, then obviously the, uh, the arms trade treaty is not uh, 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 that serious. And and it's, it should be noted that the the permits for the light armored vehicle sale. Uh, those the fourteen billion dollar light armored vehicle sale, uh, the biggest uh, export of Canadian weapons ever, actually biggest single uh, export uh, contract in Canadian history. Um, that that uh, that uh, there's that's some, a permit that's you know was was uh, signed and uh, the process of delivering those weapons began before Canada signed the International Arms Trade Treaty. But but uh, uh, they have they have begin new uh, export permits of weapons to the Saudis that, and that, those include, uh, you know, rifles, Canadian right made rifles that have appeared in, in, uh, in Yemen and other uh, uh, arms. So, so no, the, the arms trade treaty is, you know, it's sort of sounds good in, in theory. Uh, but just like Canada had on paper, it had, uh, it had arms, you know, had restrictions 
previous to signing the Arms Trade Treaty um, with uh, its own legislation, and and there was always ways of uh, of bypassing that uh, that legislation. So you wrote an article recently about the uh, role of the Canadian government in promoting these sales, and I, that's a lot to do with what the Canadian government does. I mean, if you visit one of the embassies uh, kind of anywhere in the world, uh, they're all about uh, facilitating the sale of, of products to whatever country the embassy is in. Um, so why shouldn't they, why shouldn't the government be promoting arms sales is what People would say it's part of the economy, it's an export, so why not, Why shouldn't the Canadian government do this? Well, I think the first thing is I don't think most Canadians perceive as much of or most of what embassies do is advance Canadian corporate interests. That's not what most people perceive embassies doing. It's that they that they deal with diplomatic issues, visas, and stuff like that. Um, but you're right. In fact, most of what they do do is advance Canadian corporate interests. Uh, and in case of arms sales, I mean, one of the things defense attaches do, and there's about 30 plus Canadian defense attaches at embassies, uh, high commissions around the world, uh, part of their explicit job is to advance uh, a Canadian arms exports. Now, uh, I think the reason uh, why the Canadian government shouldn't be promoting arms sales is fairly self-explanatory in that, um, you know, these are used to uh, kill people. And that uh, I think most people consider that to be a bad thing. Uh, now, in some contexts, obviously, there's varying degrees of, of you know, who you're selling weapons to and the likelihood of those weapons to be used in conflict. But, but the Canadian government, uh, when it comes to allied nations, its willingness to sell weapons to basically anybody, i.e. if you're willing to sell weapons to the Saudis, both with regards to Yemen and with regards to domestic repression, you're pretty much willing to sell arms to any geopolitical ally. Now, the Canadian government doesn't promote arms sales to uh, you know, China or Russia or Venezuela, countries that are viewed as you know, uh, geopolitical competitors. So there are, it's, not a, it's not a promotion of arms sales no matter what. It's a promotion of arms sales no matter what to uh, countries that are viewed as you know, uh, aligned with, uh, with Washington. Um, but again, I think that there, most people uh, would be, most Canadians would be made uncomfortable to understand the scope to which the Canadian government, the Canadian military uh, spend taxpayer dollars, take you know, time, effort to, uh, to promote uh, arms exports, uh, including to hum- uh, clear human rights abusing uh, militaries. I guess it's the it's the hypocrisy of Canada trying to portray itself as like one of the main peacekeepers in the world, one of the main blue helmet countries, uh, and making so much money out of out of war. It's, the hypocrisy is something, but the the other part of it is is how much Canada sells the United States, and it's a little murky, is it, or is it a little? Has the treaty made it any clearer what the size of those sales are and where the Canadian arms and parts are going when they sell to the United States? Uh, it's very murky. I mean, the, the going back half a century, more than half a century through the Defense Production Sharing Agreement, uh, basically the Canadian arms uh, industrial base is viewed as you know it's an integrated North American market, uh, and so the Canadian government uh, doesn't even give data on uh, on arms exports to the U.S. Uh, so we don't know. We know it's billions of dollars. I think usually it's viewed as somewhere between more than half of all of Canada's global 
arms exports go to the U.S. And last year, almost four billion in non-U.S. arms exports. So that would you know put it at around another four billion to the U.S. Uh, but we don't really know. Um, uh, it's when Canada provides uh, military equipment to the U.S. that is then you know passed on to other countries. There is supposed to be a Canadian okay for that. Uh, that that generally doesn't happen. Uh, and you know, there's all kinds of different components of uh, of you know weapon systems that are that are produced in Canada. Canada is not generally a uh, producer of full weapon systems, but but Canadian companies provide all kinds of uh, high tech components to broader U.S. Uh, uh, weapon systems uh, that are you know used by the American military and then also exported uh, uh, to many different. Uh, uh, countries. This uh, this thing about selling to the U.S. and then you don't know what the U.S. does with them. Uh, the same thing must go with Saudi Arabia. So much of what Saudis bought on the global arms market, I don't know specifically about Canada, wound up in Syria. And and the Saudis are clearly arming uh, uh, what, I don't know the term one wants to use, Islamic militants or ISIS types, uh, even Al-Qaeda types. Uh, Saudi's been passing arms through to uh, a lot of these kinds of forces. And I assume there's no restriction on the Saudis once they take delivery of Canadian arms where they're going to end up. No, there's no restriction. I'm personally not familiar about weapons in Syria. I think it's, it's very likely that Canadian weapons uh, appeared in Syria via Saudi Arabia, via UAE. Uh, we have absolute uncontrovertible uh, video uh, photographic evidence of Yemen, sniper rifles, m- multiple different Canadian companies, uh, light armored vehicles in, in Yemen. There was also uh, uh, Canadian light armored, light armored vehicles used when the Saudis uh, invaded Bahrain in 2011 to help uh, suppress the uh, pro-democracy movement there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, once the weapons uh, are in the hands of the Saudi military, it's uh, it's. Uh, and we also know the Saudis use Canadian weaponry when they suppressed uh, uh, Shia movements in the east of Saudi Arabia uh, a handful of years ago. Um, but uh, but yeah, once it's in the hands of the Saudi military and or U.S. military um, or the Israeli military, for that matter, the uh, the uh, Canadian uh, it's not clear, and the Canadian government is not interested in trying to figure out uh, where the weapons are used. Uh, certainly, if it if it uh, portrays those weapon sales in a negative light. Do we know whether Canada produces any parts or is part of the production of nuclear weapons in the United States? I don't know about. Today, I mean, historically, obviously, with the uh, the, the the two uh, nuclear bombs that were dropped on uh, Japan, uh, Canada was right at uh, you know alongside Britain. It was the it was the third player in the uh, uh, Manhattan Project, and in supporting that uranium, you know, you had the the, the uh, uh, Canadian minister. C. Uh, uh, D. Howe, who you know boasted about the important role Canada played in the in the production of nuclear weapons uh, after the Americans dropped them in. Uh, in Japan 75 years ago. Uh, uh, up until today, I don't think there is uh, a significant Canadian involvement in U.S. nuclear weapons, uh, um, but there's a long history of uh, Canadian uranium being used in, uh, in, U- in U.S. nuclear weapons. And do we know whether uranium is still being used in U.S. weapons? I don't think it is, but I'm not exactly sure. I know there was reports back when in uh, in uh, the, I guess the first Iraq War that there was uh, you know depleted uranium used in Iraq by the Americans, and uh, there was reports that some of that was coming from Canada. 
but I'm not sure if that's still uh, that's still the case. There's a story about a kind of turning point in Canadian U.S relations, particularly when it comes to uh, the military and what they they call uh, operational, uh, what's the term when they have cross-operational? Interoperability. In, interoperability and and such. And that was the, in, in the early 60s, I, I think it was 62 or 63, Kennedy wanted to put Bullmark nuclear tip missiles in Canada as part of the uh, anti uh, as part of a radar system called SAGE, where supposedly this radar system was going to detect Soviet bombers coming in, and then they'd be able to, the computer system would be able to direct nuclear tip Bullmark missiles at the Soviet bombers. Um, the whole thing was actually a, a fraud, and if people are interested, I'll, I'll run this again. I did an interview with Lester Ernest, who worked for the SAGE radar system, and in fact, they had never worked out how to deal with radar jamming. And so the, the, the whole thing was a trillion-dollar uh, uh, schmozzle just to get money out of the Pentagon because this is done through MIT. But but the key thing was, is Diefenbaker, when Kennedy said he wanted Bullmark missiles put in Canada, said no. And the election, I believe it was 62, 63, was f- one of the major issues in the election was Diefenbaker saying no Bullmarks. And this was the election where Lester Pearson – uh, actually won eventually, and Pearson was in favor of Bullmark missiles. And it turned out that Kennedy had actually sent pollster Lou Harris up to Ottawa with a fake name and a fake passport to help Pearson with very modern polling methods and messaging, and in fact helped Pearson win. In fact, I, Ron Haggard used to be a friend of mine. I mean, he was a friend of mine. He passed away. Uh, he was covering thing, uh, Ottawa at that time for, I guess, the Toronto Star. He said it was a, a, a well-known fact or in some ways a joke that Pearson's election campaign was being run out of the US basement of the U.S. Embassy. So Kennedy actually helped bring down the Diefenbaker government in order to impose Bullmark missiles, even at a time, because by the time they put the Bullmarks in Canada, they were obsolete. Because by that time, there were enough ICBMs that if there ever was a war, the Soviets wouldn't have used bombers anyway. But I think that's a critical moment in where Diefenbaker, that still had a lot, one foot in the British with the British and didn't want to have such complete subservience to the U.S. military complex uh, was defeated. And then Canada becomes a, a real full-fledged partner in the American industrial military complex. Um, how how important is that partnership? We, we know it's uh, half of the export sales, but in terms of interoperability, in terms of exports of arms, um, how important is it to Canada? And, and what does it mean for Canadian sovereignty? Well, I mean, I think that the military partnership between the Canadian military and the U.S. military, you, you can't overplay the extent of, of uh, interrelations. Uh, I, some stat a few years ago, there was 80 different formal agreements uh, about 250 other uh, working arrangements between the Canadian military and the American military. You know, there's, you know, NORAD is the most famous one where the U.S. Uh, generals and can can direct uh, Canadian-based airplanes in case of theoretical, you know, theoretical Russian invasion. Um, and then a Canadian who's second in command, if the American is, is, uh, is sick or out of, out of place, he can be in charge of U.S. capabilities. So, 
I, there's, you know, I've, I've joked previously that if the U.S. was to invade uh, Canada, there would be Canadians through the NORAD system that would be enabling the U.S. invasion of Canada, just like there are Canadians through the NORAD <laughs> that, that, that helped the U.S. invasion of Iraq, about, you know, bombing of Afghanistan and anywhere where the U.S. is bombing. They're, they're in, enabling that through, through NORAD command. Um, so, so there is, it's, you know, it's an incredibly uh, integrated military relationship. Uh, if you look at the history of the uh, generals, uh, the recent chiefs of the defense staff of the Canadian military, they all have uh, been trained in the U.S. and have, you know, at, at different points been in charge of thousands of, of, uh, of U.S. troops. Uh, you know, Walter Natizink, the uh, chief of defense staff for early like 2010s, uh, he was in charge of 35,000 foreign troops in Iraq during the during U.S. U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. Um, so, if you look at you know the this and, and the, Canadian, the Canadian generals played an important role in Libya too, didn't they? Yeah, well, that was that was formally under as a as a Canadian. It was a Canadian that was commanded the whole NATO bombing of of, of Libya. That was officially as a Canadian. But Walter Natizink did it. You know, Canada was technically not supposed to be involved in the war in Iraq and invasion of war in Iraq. Um, so, so, you know, the, the relationship between the Canadian military and American military is, you know, people have noted repeatedly that Canadian top uh, generals and, and officials, they are more concerned about their relationship to their American counterparts than they are to their, you know, political masters in Ottawa. That, that is said over, over and over again. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, sometimes there's a, some element of a left nationalist thing that kind of can sometimes exaggerate some of that thing, but I think it is, it is, it is very real in terms of uh, uh, um, the relationship. And, and uh, I think, you know, for, for good reason, from a Canadian military's perspective, the, the American military treats the Canadian military better than any other country's military. They they are uh, they are you know they're basically treated as if as if they are Americans and they're uh, uh, get to be in charge of all kinds of you know fancy weapon systems and stuff they they couldn't possibly imagine uh, uh, being in charge of if they just were in in Canada and they get to be dispatched in different countries again. They get you know more action if you like. Um, uh, and so, so that's, uh, that's something that's really significant. And then, and then, you know, the whole, um, uh, military industrial base in this country, uh, you know, the defense production sharing agreement where the, basically it's a really good deal for Canadian, uh, weapons companies to be able to contract to, to the Pentagon. And, uh, and that was designed back in the fifties, uh, that was designed in part to bring the whole, uh, Canadian, uh, uh, military industry and industry more generally into being tied into the U.S. for political purposes of, you know, aligning Canada with the, with the U.S. Uh, empire. And that was, you know, stated pretty explicitly by the American officials at the time. Um, so, so yeah, I think that the, in the case of, uh, in the case of uh, Diefenbaker and, and Pearson, you're exactly right, was, was Diefenbaker was a little bit slow in understanding the shift that uh, was going on within Canada towards being completely aligned with the, with the U.S empire from you know the historic alignment with the british and pearson re- represents really the you know the complete break where it's unequivocal that that uh, canada is a primarily aligned with the uh with the u.s empire um and i think that the you know again i, I think 
I'm, I'm, I'm a little cautious with some, some left nationalist Canadian uh, uh, explanations of this, of framing it just simply as Canada being uh, deferent to the U.S. I, I view it as the Canadian military, Canadian military companies have done very well by, by this relationship. Uh, and so they see it as very much serving their, uh, their interests. And I think it's a combination of things, but uh, the the growing intertwining of the Canadian and U.S. economy, which certainly begins at the beginning, early in the 20th century, but reaches a real culmination that Pearson-Diefenbaker election, I think, was a reflection that the preponderance of the economy uh, had really become American uh, by 1960-61. In fact, it really kind of had earlier, but it hadn't played itself out all through the politics yet. Um, but, but since that time, the importance of the U.S. Uh, market for Canadian exports has just completely taken over the Canadian economy, and especially now since NAFTA and free trade, uh, the uh, the Canadian economy would couldn't survive at least as it is without this exports. And I interviewed General Lewis McKenzie in two thousand and four, and I, I talked to him about the Iraq War and the Afghan War, and I said, you know, why did we send troops to Afghanistan? And his answer was because we didn't send them to Iraq. And now I know we did kind of, but not in the kind of numbers. And and with the kind of commitment that the Americans wanted, uh, I know there was a there was a Canadian involvement, but it was minor compared to what what Bush wanted. And Mackenzie told me that we had to do Afghanistan in a big way, and the quote from him was, "Because we had to pay in blood if we wanted to keep the border open for Canadian exports." Now, I don't know if he was a little bit exaggerating or not, uh, in the sense that I'm not so sure Bush would have closed the border. But frankly, you can imagine a Trump type actually might. And so the argument you would get from the Canadian government, I guess, and such is that that's the way it is. The Canadian economy is completely subservient and, and needing the American market. And so we have to play along when it comes to the military machine and, and foreign policy machine. And they, they don't think another world is possible. I mean, I agree with big chunks of that. But I think that if you look at the Mexican economy, right, the Mexican economy is even more, even greater exports. And take a really like concrete uh, example. So Meng Wanzhou, the, the chief financial officer of uh, Huawei, it was the Canadians that arrested her. She was en route to Mexico. Mexican officials have already gone on record saying there's no way they would have arrested her on behalf of the Trump administration if she would have arrived in Mexico City. Uh, she'd been in like 12 different uh, countries before arriving in Canada. Um, Mexico didn't go into Afghanistan, right? The Mexican military is not as integrated, not as Mexican foreign policy is not as integrated into U.S. foreign policy. So I, I agree that there is a the American U.S. has all kinds of leverage in, in in terms of you know economic relationship and and a fear in, in the Canadian uh, in Canadians and Canadian business class about you know closing the border. But I think there's something um, 
much more. There's another element to it, which is which is uh, I think a mix of everything from uh, you know white supremacy to linguistic commonality to the fact that the you know Canadian capitalists are totally integrated with with American capitalists. That you know they and that's been the case for more than a century where. You know, when the Americans uh, invaded Cuba, it was Canadian banks that were the primary beneficiaries that did all the banking for the U.S. occupation of Cuba in the early 1900s. Um, so, you know, Canada's role in the Five Eyes Intelligence Agency, right? It's the Canadian military, the communication security establishment, which is an arm of the Canadian military that's part of the Five Eyes with the U.S., Britain, uh, New Zealand, Australia, that's, you know, really pushing the conflict with China today. Um and uh, and that that's rooted in you know colonialism that's rooted in British Empire. There's a linguistic component to it, though the linguistic components even if you get into that, you know Nigeria is a bigger in, more English speakers in Nigeria or in India than there are in New Zealand or 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 or, or, uh, or Australia. So I think there's you know there's relationships that are tied to um, you know Canada just being at the core of of uh, empire, and we're you know. And, and I really genuinely believe that when American military uh, uh, commander sees a uh, you know another Canadian uh, general, they see some they see themselves, and they, you know there's all kinds of things behind that. Um, and and I think so. So I, I see it as the Canadian elite view the world and profit from the world in a very similar way to the U.S. elite. Yes, there are instances clearly where the U.S. pressures. I mean. The the uh, the George W. Bush's uh, ambassador to uh, Ottawa, um, forgetting his name right now, his, he said that he had one uh, directive, which was to increase Canadian military spending. That was the sin- single directive. Uh, Donald Trump has sent letters to uh, Trudeau calling for an increase in military spending. So so the the U.S. views uh, expanding the Canadian military is really just expanding their military and expanding uh, 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 the Canadian you know the American. Empire, um, so I think that uh, you know there are instances where there, where there is pressure. Uh, increasing military spending is a clear example, uh, but I, I think that it's uh, there is a, a, a really a commonality of uh, of interest uh, among the Canadian ruling class and the American ruling class that's quite unprecedented. Yeah, I think that's really important what you're saying. Um, they they like the argument that Lewis McKenzie gives uh, as if Canada's pressured or forced into doing these terrible things. And there may be some truth to that, but the bigger story is is that Canadian companies and the corporate elite and particularly the Canadian banks, uh, they only care about sovereignty when it makes them money to care about sovereignty. So Canadian broadcasting is a really good example of it. For a long time, uh, the Canadian broadcasters uh, defended the Canadian market and didn't want any uh, lessening of restriction on American channels coming up here. They wanted simulcasting of ads uh, to protect their advertising market. But as the uh, some of the private monopolies are big broadcasters got Canadians got really big and became pretty big pools of capital themselves. What they really then wanted was to get into the U S market. 
where there was more money to be made. And so then they didn't mind all kinds of liberalization and lessening the restrictions on Canadian, uh, on U.S. channels in Canada and such. And then they didn't mind the opening up because they wanted to go down there. Uh, same thing with banking. Uh, you know, the longest time they really protected banking, and they still do to a large extent. But when TD started, bought a big bank in the U.S. and the Canadian banks became uh, real players, uh, then they weren't they weren't so concerned about sovereignty anymore, and and uh, the 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 issue for them is that sovereignty and the defense of the Canadian border was for a time necessary for the Canadian elite to get on its own legs and become big enough to compete on a global stage. But once they were big enough, then the sovereignty became less and less an issue for them. And that, that's kind of where they are now. The, the, and, and it's kind of a nice game the Canadians get to play, which is you can ride the sort of gravy train of global plunder of the, that the United States is able to carry out and cash in on that, but still look you know, so pretty and nice to the rest of the world. Although, as we discussed in the last interview we did, maybe not so nice anymore because they couldn't get voted onto the UN Security Council. So uh, maybe a lot of the world staying through the, the veneer of that. Uh, the, the, right now, if you look at what's going on in the United States, um, there's a, a very, very aggressive approach being taken to China. Uh, and it's not just Trump. Uh, you're seeing it in Biden's rhetoric as well. And while some of that might be tactical, that he doesn't want Trump to outflank him on his on the China rhetoric, and if anything, he's may try to outflank Trump from the right on China. Um, Biden's policies actually are very confrontational with China, and maybe not so much as as, as Trump is talking about. Uh, you know, Steve Bannon's in in uh, Trump's ear, and he talks about actually encouraging conflict in the South China Sea. And there's a lot of voices now about uh, a big declaration of defense of Taiwan if China ever tries to use any military. Uh, force in Taiwan, because right now it's supposedly ambiguous. Uh, Canada was the country that, you know, in alliance with the United States, really, but still uh, spearheaded the kind of opening of relationships between the United States and China. Where is Canada now? Uh, you talked about the arrest of Huawei and uh, that woman. Uh, is Canada distancing itself at all from this anti-China fervor that's happening in, in the United States? Well, I mean, just uh, just yesterday was the 50th, commemora- 50th anniversary commemoration of uh, Canada's diplomatic relations with China. And uh, Justin Trudeau, who has been viewed as, uh, you know, as widely criticized for being sort of pro-China by much of the uh, much of the establishment. Um, uh, he's been close to people like the Demare family that are that are, uh, you know, a power corporation, which is you know billionaire family who have longstanding business relations with China going back, you know, 40, 40 years. Um, and uh, so he's been viewed as sort of uh, uh, close to, uh, you know, I guess kind of pro-China, if you want to call it that. Um, but he his speech yesterday on the 50th anniversary was considered this big step towards we're getting tough on China and, and you know, uh, criticism of, uh, of China. Now, I mentioned the arrest of uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou, the head of uh, uh, 
of uh, Huawei, um, and uh, which is this you know Chinese uh, a multinational five G cutting edge uh, um, uh, telecommunications company. And uh, and basically, the Americans are trying to uh, to stunt uh, this this rise of uh, one of China's you know first really successful global um, high tech uh, firms. And uh, her arrest was uh, was done at the best of the U.S. And it's supposedly because uh, because she uh, her company uh, uh, did really had relations with Iran and and violated American sanctions. Uh, against Iran or, or, or misled a bank about uh, violating American sanctions against Iran. Canada frames their arrest of, of uh, Meng Wanzhou and, and the, uh, and the deport, uh, um, deporting her or extraditing her, should I say, uh, as you know, following the inter, you know, rules-based order or, or following the law. But in fact, you know, U.S. Uh, sanctions on Iran contravene international law. So upholding you're, you're upholding American violation of international law. Um, but so Canada's, I think, uh, it's the Trudeau government is split. Uh, the military sector of the Canadian mili- of the Canadian establishment very much wants to go conflict with with China. Uh, right now, uh, Canada's a Canadian naval vessel that's part of those uh, uh, so-called freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, and that, that are viewed as you know hostile by China and alongside American uh, uh, naval vessels. Just one a couple of days ago that got a bit of media attention. It's, that's been going on at a low level for for a number of uh, a number of years so so um the you know the security state communication security establishment the canadian military uh, CSIS, the intelligence agency they clearly want a more uh conflictual uh, relationship with china there are elements of the canadian corporate class that see china as a big market and are you know want uh better relations with uh with china but uh but the the thrust of the direction is is going towards conflict with uh, China, and and you, when you start getting into it, I mean, you know, there's Canadian troops in 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 Korea still. There's a small number of Canadian troops, you know, since the Korean War in the early 1950s. You know, that was a war fought against China in in large part, and Canadian troops continue to be there alongside you know 30,000 or so American troops. Uh, uh, Canada, you know, is trying to set up a, a, a naval base uh, uh, or, or small uh, uh, military hub in. Singapore partly tied to uh, conflict with uh, with China or you know keeping an eye on China. Um, so there's this whole like it's in, in 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 the Canadian political discussion. It's sort of the the whole element of the history of of uh, aggression uh, towards China is just kind of like wiped out. And yes, China is now a powerful country and, you know, it's full of billionaires. I don't think it's a country that, you know, progressive minded people should look up to as some, you know, beacon of where we want to go. Lots of, you know, repression. Um, uh, But China has, you know, risen out of uh, being, you know, dominated imperially for, you know, more than a century. And, and, uh, and the ways in which Canada, you know, contributed to that, you know, refused to recognize China for more than 20 years, right? It recognized, uh, you know, the government in Taiwan for more than 20 years. Um, so there's this whole history that's sort of left out of the discussion. Uh, and, and quite frankly, a lot of this is, you know, I, I consider just incredibly dangerous. I mean, you want to get into another Cold War with China? Do you want to, you know, actually turn into a hot war and, and have a conflict that just seems like, you know, craziness? Uh, it's also just drives us away from dealing with, the pandemic, 
climate crisis, all these things that necessitate, you know, global cooperation. Um, but there's this whole push from the uh, security, military elements of Canadian uh, political life, which are you know, very well integrated with the U.S. security and military that are, you know, pushing in that direction. Yeah, you would think it would be in Canada's broader interest uh, to actually not jump on board the American uh, approach to China, to use China to give some separation, because if you're in the same situation again, where Trump threatens or something, someone like a Trump threatens Canada, uh, as Trump did in terms of adding tariffs on goods and so on, uh, the only serious alternative uh, market is China. China is a hell of a lot bigger market than the United States anyway. Uh, And if you want to create some sovereignty, some separation, you, you don't want to be seen by China as, as, you know, what's the old word, a running dog, a lackey, <laughs> which Canadians are starting to look like. And the Trudeau government was trying to sign, they early on, they wanted to sign a free trade agreement with China. And, and then in the uh, renegotiated NAFTA, there's a clause that basically uh, has the Americans have to okay a, any trade agreement with a not what well, I forget the exact wording, but a non-market country, which is widely viewed as China. So the U.S. essentially has the ability to nix a Canada-China uh, uh, free trade uh, accord. Um, and it's, you know, I find that very difficult to, to view, you know, like a free trade agreement with China as something progressive, because I think the whole model of these trade agreements is something that empowers corporations. But compared to, you know, going towards, the, you know, a, a new Cold War and more conflict with China, the you know alternative sort of like capitalistic pro-corporate kind of direction is probably preferable or is preferable than the more uh, militaristic xenophobic uh, direction that we're going in. And I think Canadians had better get the importance of this because it's not just an abstraction and it's not just about selling arms to the Saudis or, you know, going along with some terrible thing the Americans do. If, if there's a, a real fascization, I should say there already is a real fascization, a process of fascization in the United States. But if, if not this election, but maybe 2024, if, if Biden continues the economic policies of the Obama administration and the wealth gap and inequality grows so much as it did uh, under Obama, and we're heading in, our, we are in a deep depression, we are getting into a deeper depression, we're into a second wave of the pandemic, there may be a third wave of pandemic. You know, by 2024, it's it's not inconceivable at all that that the Republicans come back either with Trump again, because I'm not sure, I don't see why he can't run again if he only served one term. You're not allowed to serve two terms, but I don't think there's anything that stops you from running for a second term. Or if not a Trump, some uh, someone more uh, coherent. I was saying in another interview that, you know, Trump may be the buffoon tip of a more coherent fascist spear. And if you start to get a really overtly authoritarian government in the United States, well, I don't think it's going to be like Handmaid's Tale where Canada is a refuge or there's this other show that's on the TV called The Plot Against America, which is based on a Philip Roth novel uh, where Lindbergh won the election in 1940 and you get a fascist United States. And again, Canada is a refuge if you really get that kind of authoritarian, quasi-fascist government in the United States, given the subservience 
of the Canadian government, Canadian state to the Americans, the integration of the Canadian military with the U.S. military and such. I don't know how likely it is Canada is going to be this great refuge of democracy and human rights and, and so on, while the United States is increasingly fascist. Uh, we, we better start thinking about this stuff now, not later, because this is all getting very real. Yeah, I mean, the, the founder of the Proud Boys is a Canadian, right? You know, the Proud Boys that was cited by Trump were brought up at the uh, at the debate. And so there are those currents are you know, the integration between, the, you know, far right elements in the U.S. and in Canada are uh, – are you know take place at the at the more sort of radical end of the of the right, but then also if you look at the you know the rhetoric of uh, of the conservative, the new leader of the conservative party, he really has taken up the China uh, China campaign, and that's just totally echoing. Uh, Trump. There's, you know, some some ways in which he, you know, try to stay uh, a little bit of distance with Trump. But you know, a recent poll showed it's quite a quite a significant proportion of the Conservative Party uh, voters who are sympathetic to Trump. Right. So, so you know, the Conservative Party could be in uh, could win the next election and and uh, could be the governing party in Canada. So, um, you know, I think there is still. Uh, a distance. I think the border still uh, matters. I think Quebec is uh, plays a, a role in pampering some of that in Canadian politics uh, still. But uh, but that the, the, you know those. I think you're right that those uh, those dynamics are 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 real. And 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 when you see uh, you know Justin Trudeau just unable to uh, criticize uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, around you know you know when he's openly uh, supporting white supremacists or sending, uh, you know, troops in uh, to clear out Black Lives Matters uh, protesters. Um, when, you know, Trudeau's unable to do that, you just see how much the much of the Canadian uh, uh, elite are, you know, unwilling to challenge and and how that enables that process within uh, within Canadian political life. Yeah, I think it's very important. The other show, although it's a great show, Man in the High Castle on uh, Prime, but the same kind of story. Fascism comes to the United States and Canada supposedly uh, is exempt from it. It's not going to happen like that. And, you know, I wear both hats. I'm a dual citizen. I lived in the U.S. for many years. Now I'm back in Canada putting my Canadian hat on. Uh, We Canadians had better get serious about this because this uh, political process in the United States and the the parasitism of the financial sector and the uh, forces for uh, very far-right politics in the United States and the complete failure of this supposed liberalism of the Democratic Party to address the, the serious concerns of working people. It set the plate for, for uh, I think, a more dangerous Trump coming in the future. And for Canadians to you know, look sort of arrogantly or contemptuously or self-righteously, oh, look at us. We, we may have uh, Ford as premier of Ontario, but he ain't, it ain't like what's going on in the U.S., uh, be be careful about that because I think if it's going to come to the U.S., it's there's no way Canada is going to be immune to this disease. Thanks for joining us, Eve. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. And please, if you're listening on the podcast platforms, of which there are many, and I think we're on most of them, uh, but I don't give any way to donate when you're listening on the podcast platforms. you got to 
come on over to theanalysis.news and hit the donate button. Uh, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.